You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. All right. Good morning, Citizens Church. My name is Mike M., and it is wonderful to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, For those of you who don't know me yet, I was the Connections Minister uh, here at Citizens Church until pretty recently, Um, but a couple of months ago, I transitioned out of that role to now be the lead groups minister. Um, it It is my sincere joy to serve this church body that I love so dearly Uh, in any capacity that I can. And today, that capacity is that it's my great privilege to share with you from God's infallible, inerrant word. Now, over the past several weeks, we have been going over our church's statement of faith, core doctrines that are shared and held by evangelical churches all over the world. A few weeks ago, Jamin covered the doctrine of humanity, highlighting the dignity of man. Each and every human is a being of breathtaking dignity because we are made in the image of the triune God. And last week, our brother Tamarcus walked us through the doctrine of sin. Each and every human being is also a being of uh, breathtaking depravity because of our total rejection of the very triune God who made us in his image. He reminded us that we not only reject God's relationship, but also his reign over our lives. And this means that sin is not simply a series of little mistakes, little misunderstandings. Instead, we are perpetrators of cosmic treason. And so that brings us to today's doctrine, the doctrine of salvation. Now, just like we've said before, for each one of these doctrines, um, each one of these doctrines could be a sermon series on its own. But that sentiment is more true of this doctrine than any of the other ones, all of them combined, in fact, because the doctrine of salvation ties together all the other doctrines, God, creation, Humanity, sin, the church, the resurrection, consummation of all things, the kingdom. All of these doctrines are brought together by the linchpin of salvation, the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And not only could the doctrine of salvation merit its own little sermon series, in a very real sense, every sermon that we preach here at Citizens Church touches upon the doctrine of salvation. That is, we are constantly trying to describe the beauty of the living God and his glorious gospel work of redeeming and restoring his creation in and through his image bearers, calling together his church from all the nations for his kingdom's flourishing. And all of this grounded in the infallible, inerrant, revealed word of God. So for today's purposes, we'll be looking in two books. We'll be looking at the, um, the letter to the Ephesians, but we'll also be looking in Romans as well. We've already read Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. Let me take a look at Romans chapter 8, three verses in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, 29, 30. 
This begins with one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that, we, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, the doctrine of salvation is both very broad and very deep. So I'm just going to list out a bunch of different theological terms that relate to the doctrine of salvation, some of which were actually found in the Romans passage that we just read. There is uh, foreknowledge and election and predestination, atonement, effectual calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, preservation, and glorification. That is a lot of words, and I have like 20 minutes left. <laughs> so to answer the question before us today, what is salvation? I'm going to break that question down into three smaller questions. If we're saved... What are we saved from? What are we saved by? And what are we saved for? Let me just go ahead and tell you the point of my sermon is to answer these questions, and I'll tell you the answer up front. We are saved from God's wrath. We are saved by God's grace. And we are saved for God's glory and God's love. We are saved from God. We are saved by God. We are saved for God. The answer to all three of those questions is God. Now, for those of you who are keeping track out of that big old word salad, we're mostly going to be talking about justification, sanctification, and glorification today. So let's get to work. The first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 that we read today deal with much of what Tamarcus covered last week. Let's take a look. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. As I said before, we are perpetrators of a cosmic treason. We have made ourselves enemies of God ever since the garden. And so we need to be made right with God again. This is called justification. And the reason why we need justification, why we need to be made right with God is this. The main problem facing humanity is not just war or death, depression, hunger, racial disunity, political turmoil, broken families, etc., etc. All of these are very real problems that God is saving us from and will save us from as he redeems and restores and reconciles all things to himself. But these are external, invisible manifestations of the brokenness within the world. And they are meant to point to the invisible and spiritual brokenness found within every human being. That putrid death, that writhing chaos that the Bible names sin. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 10, 28. 
Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill your soul. But rather fear him, fear God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You know, there's a famous verse in Romans 8 where Paul asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? Do you guys know that verse? What's the flip side of that verse, though? If God is against us, who can be for us? God himself puts it this way in Isaiah 43. Who could deliver from my hand? When I act, who can reverse it? Salvation means that we are saved from God's just wrath. But who can do that? When the disciples asked Jesus, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, with man this is impossible. But with God all things are possible. Paul here in, Roman, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, he opens verse 4 with Jesus' own teaching. He echoes this by using the two sweetest words in the Bible. But God. These two words, but God, sum up the heart of the gospel. Adam and Eve did this, and humanity did that, and the devil did this, and the nations are doing that, and we were all dead in our sins and our trespasses. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Or put another way, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's answer to mankind's cosmic treason is to reveal his cosmic grace through his son's cosmic faithfulness. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Now, if you have your Bible, flick back. If you're in Ephesians chapter 2, flip back one page to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read you one sentence out of Ephesians 1. Starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose." which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed 
We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, all that is one sentence in Greek, I promise. This super long 200-word sentence outlines all three persons of the Trinity. You see the Father, and you see the Son, and you see the Spirit, all working to secure and seal our salvation. The Father plans our redemption, and the Son purchases our redemption, and the Spirit seals our redemption. Believer, can you even begin to fathom how deeply you are loved? From eternity past, God has been moving towards you in grace, with patience and deliberation to win you to himself even as you ran. We are saved from God's wrath by God's grace. 2,000 years ago, God became a man. He took on our frail humanity. And where we learn that Adam failed his test in the garden and tried to claim a tree that he had not earned, when Jesus was tested in his garden, he answered, not my will, but your will be done, Father. And he climbed a hill to hang on a tree that he had not earned. Jesus was obedient in life. He was obedient unto death, even death on a cross, exchanging our sin for his own righteousness. If you are listening to the sound of my voice and you have not yet trusted in Jesus, but you are burdened by your sin, burdened by your suffering, I want you to know that God hates your sin. God hates your suffering more than you do. But unlike we who can just groan and grumble, God can rescue you. God can redeem you. God can restore you. With us, it is all impossible. It's all heaven. But with God, all things are possible. We are saved by God's grace through our faith. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ. Grasp him with your faith. That means trust that he is enough that he is trustworthy when he says that his finished work is able to save you to the uttermost. And the only thing you bring to the table of salvation is the sin that made it necessary in the first place. Salvation from beginning to end is the work of God and his grace. Paul says it this way in chapter 2, starting in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So salvation means we are saved by God's grace. Now let me be very clear about something. Being made right with God, justification, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from our works that's why he says, this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. God does not accept us because of anything we've done or any gift we've ever given to him. Notice that in our text, even our faith is a gift from God. But even though we are justified by faith, by faith alone, we are not justified by a faith that remains alone. What do I mean by that? 
It is impossible for a person who is to be justified by faith in Christ and have absolutely no change in his behavior. Why is that? I'm glad you asked. That takes us to point three. The why of salvation. Why are we saved? Okay, so we are saved from God and we are saved by God. But why? Why are we saved? What are we saved for? Paul actually gives us two answers in today's passage. One is for today. One is for your life. We call that sanctification. And one is for far, far into the future. That's called glorification. All right, so let's start with the first one, the one for today, sanctification. Verse 10 tells us the near-term purpose. For salvation, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. We are saved for good works, that we should walk in them, perform them, right? Now, this can be easily misunderstood. Something like, God did all this amazing stuff for you, and now you're saved, and now out of your gratitude, you can spend the rest of your life paying God back with your good works. Like, show him how thankful you are. That that sounds like okay at first, but this kind of theology can cause a, a burnout, And here's why. You will never, you can never pay God back with your good works. Why? Because just like your faith, even your good works are not a gift you give to God. They are a gift he's giving to you. He is making you look like Jesus. We're going to look at Romans 8, 28 through 30 now. Romans 8, 28 tells us a famous thing, that in the life of believers, all things work together for good. And the very next verse tells us why. Why do all things work together for our good? Verse 29. For, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he foreknew, he predestined for what? to be conformed to the image of his son, to look like Jesus. Who does Jesus look like? Jamin reminded us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15, and that Jesus in Hebrews 1 is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The purpose of salvation is the restoration of God's image in humanity. If sin dehumanizes us by marring the image of God across our whole person, in sanctification, the Holy Spirit is rehumanizing us, restoring the image of God in us across our whole person by making us look like Jesus, who is the new standard of humanity, the only one who is the perfect image bearer of God. Sin dehumanizes Sanctification rehumanizes. That is what sanctification is, rehumanization, being conformed to the image of his son, the perfect God-man. And that's why this is not about doing nice deeds and collecting merit badges to show God that you're a good little boy, good little girl, and hope that he uh, overlooks your sin. No, you are being transformed completely and utterly, inwardly. You begin to think with the mind of Christ And you begin to feel with the heart of Christ. You begin to see people with the eyes of Christ. You begin to embrace strangers with the arms of Christ. You serve with the nail-pierced hands and feet 
of Christ. Justification is by faith alone apart from works, but not by a faith that remains alone. Justification is always accompanied by sanctification. You were saved to look more and more like Jesus. To have your humanity restored in your whole person. Now, the order of this is very important. Many world religions don't use these exact words, but they, they basically reverse the order. You are sanctified to be justified. In other words, you get your life together. You do enough stuff. If you are able to accumulate good works, good karma, right, good vibes, be more good than you are bad, then you'll be accepted. And God does not operate that way. He accepts us. And then he calls us. He invites us to be transformed to look like Jesus. This process is progressive. It is gradual. But it is never perfect. Never complete. Never entire in this life. We will never be fully sanctified until the last step of salvation what Romans 8.30 calls glorification. This is when we are physically resurrected in new bodies. The presence of sin removed altogether, our sin nature utterly removed, our sanctification totally complete. This brings me to my last point, and kind of my favorite one. Why do we need be justified and have our whole person sanctified, washed and restored? Why does God foreknow? Why does he elect? Why does he justify, sanctify, glorify? Why does he do these things? Now, we've looked at the near-term why so that we would look like Christ, but now let's look at the future ultimate why. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 again. We'll look at verse 4 through 7 one more time. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then verse seven starts with two very important words. So that. So that denotes a purpose clause. Right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Jesus saved us, perfected us. Why? So that in the coming ages, this means after Jesus returns, after glorification, in the coming ages, God might show us the riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you catch the enormity of this? Like even glorification, the culmination of salvation, is not the point in and of itself. He's doing all of this so that he can do something else. He can begin to show us how much he loves us. This is, this is honestly a little mind-blowing. First time I was taught this and when I, when I discovered this, when I was reading through this and I was digesting this, I had to take a minute here. Like, wait, hold up. Okay, God has already lavished so much love on us. Like he sent his son to die for us. He sent his spirit to indwell us, to transform us. He holds us every day. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Let's say to wretch like me. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, should die for me? Oh, how he loves us. And yet God says, yeah, I haven't even started yet. Like all of that is set up so that I can start to love you. You don't even have categories for that yet. 
I did all of that so that in the coming ages, I might show you the riches of my grace in kindness towards you. Let me illustrate this in this way. How many times in the Bible um, is God's people called God's bride? Like in the Old Testament, in the New, Test- New Testament. It's a consist- consistent picture, right? And the book of Revelation ends with a wedding feast where the bride, the church, is presented to the bridegroom, Christ, right? Now, let me ask you this question. Is the wedding supposed to be the beginning or the end of the marriage, right? Is that the beginning or the end of a couple's life story together? This weekend, I celebrated my wife's birthday. We've been married for 12 years. We celebrated with our home group. It was pretty awesome. And I can tell you, I love her now far more deeply than when we got uh, on our wedding day, when I carried her out of the wedding chapel on my back. It's a story from another, another time. <laughs> the end of the Bible is not the end of the story of God's love for us, but the beginning. Let me put it this way for my fellow movie buffs. Right? You might have seen this obscure indie film called Star Wars. Right? Now, some of you might have seen it, maybe, I don't know. But you know how before the movie starts, there is this like crawl of giant yellow text that flies over the camera before the movie actually starts? If God's story of his love for humanity is the Star Wars trilogy, all of human history is just that text crawl. The movie hasn't even started yet. It is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the evil galactic empire. God loves us so much, and the actual movie hasn't even started yet. It's just a foretaste. God is saving us. God is sanctifying us. And one day, God will perfect us, conforming us to the image of Christ himself so that we can begin to receive his love. New wine does not fit into old wineskins. That's why we're being made new. So that we can glorify and enjoy God forever. And he didn't need to do any of this. Any of it. Justification, sanctification, any of these things. He didn't owe any of us any of this. It is all grace. All grace. If you ask me, Okay, why does God love us so much? I I can only answer what I was taught as a child. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I don't know why God is so kind, and God is so loving, and God is so good to a sinner like me. It doesn't make sense to me, honestly, but the Bible tells me so. The inerrant word of God tells me so, and that's good enough for me. Salvation means that we are saved from God. We are saved by God. And that we are saved for God to love him and to be loved by him forever and ever to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. Dear God, Lord, you are so good. You are so, so good. God, we just ask that you would let the beauty of salvation, let the riches of your grace just sink deep into our bones, oh God, that we might see you with fresh eyes 
and marvel at the work that you are doing on our behalf, O God. Lord, that you are a God of mercy and grace, love. Lord, help us to see that. Lord, to be a people that look like Jesus, a people of love and mercy and grace, O God. To tell of the riches that you have lavished upon us, O Lord. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ.